Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. I am so sorry about the smell. Can you smell it? I don't smell anything. Like somebody lit a dog on fire. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to Ideas. Well, anyway, that was my front yard. That is Nicolas Cage from the recent movie, The Color Out of Space. Something metallic down here. It involves a meteor that falls to Earth right in Nicolas Cage's alpaca farm and begins to glow, a color that no one's ever seen before. Well, it was last night. I was in bed with my wife, and then there was this boom, like, like, a, like a sonic boom and a big flash, <clears throat> like a pink light. Or actually, I don't even know what color it was. It wasn't like any color I'd ever seen before, and then everything just blew up or fell from the sky. It isn't long before that indescribable light takes over the property, turns the alpacas into horrible nightmare monsters, and consumes the entire world in its deathly pinkish glow. The movie is based on the story by American author H.P. Lovecraft. And The Color Out of Space is just one of the many modern Lovecraft adaptations and homages. There's HBO's Lovecraft Country. I love that the heroes get to go on adventures in other worlds, defy insurmountable odds, defeat the monster, save the day. The highly Lovecraftian Stranger Things. You know the little shadows? Echo of the material plane where necrotic and shadow magic. Yeah, exactly. If that did exist, a place like the Vale of Shadows, how would we travel there? There was even a recent series of Canadian kids' movies starring Christopher Plummer, just called Howard Lovecraft, depicting the boyhood adventures of young H.P. Nyarlathotep is beyond even us. He cannot be fought. He cannot be beaten. The only way is surrender. H.P. Lovecraft is having a moment. From books to movies to TV and video games, Lovecraft's brand of cosmic horror is spreading like an unstoppable pink glow. And in some ways, Lovecraft's fiction can seem to spill out into the real world. And there's just a sense that we are teetering on the brink of something, but we don't know what it is or what to call it. You consume it and you also know it comes with all of these poisonous elements. This documentary from Matthew Lazen Ryder explores why Lovecraft, ignored in his time, might resonate so well in the 21st century. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, 
is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Those are the opening words of H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The first paragraph of the story encapsulates Lovecraft's entire literary philosophy. That humanity is unaware of the true nature of the world, and that if we scratch too deeply at the surface of reality, we might come to face the awesome powers of the universe. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. The Call of Cthulhu is quintessential Lovecraft. It tells the story of a man going through his dead uncle's belongings who uncovers a terrifying secret about Earth, humanity, and the universe. What could be the meaning of the queer clay idol and the disjointed jottings, ramblings, and cuttings which I found? The narrator's uncle was a professor of linguistics and sometime before his death became obsessed with reports of weird cults and strange happenings all around the world. He also seems to have acquired an odd stone idol. The idol was a rough rectangle, less than an inch thick. It seemed to be a sort of monster or symbol representing a monster or a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. A pulpy, tentacled head surmounted a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings. But it was the general outline of the whole which made it most shockingly frightful. That is the first ever given description of Cthulhu, a tentacled, corpulent god who's found new life in the modern world in memes, tattoos, stuffed toys, kids' books, election advertising, and more. The Call of Cthulhu was published in 1926. That was long before, say, Cthulhu made a guest appearance on South Park. Tom, the DP Oil Company has had another drilling accident. This time they appear to have unleashed the dark and mighty Cthulhu. The rise of Cthulhu from another dimension brings about 3,000 years of darkness, Tom, where we will all be driven to madness and made to serve as Cthulhu's cultist slaves. Before Cthulhu for president became a once-every-four-years YouTube joke, Cthulhu, 2012. He will end corporate bailouts. He will end the war on drugs. He will end the world as we know it. And before people made their own Cthulhu-themed parody versions of pop songs. Hey there, Cthulhu, down there in your sunken city. You're a billion light years distant and the stars look very pretty from relay. As celebrated as the great old god Cthulhu is, his creator is less so. When I uh, told my family that I was writing this book, they said, who? 
Leslie Klinger is an author and editor of two Lovecraft compilations, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft and the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft Beyond Arkham. Now, Cthulhu may be eternal and timeless, and we will hear more about Cthulhu, by the way, but Lovecraft is, in the grand scheme of things, only recently famous, if you could call him famous at all. For most of the 20th century, if you'd have asked, who is H.P. Lovecraft? Well, for a long time, the answer was nobody anybody heard of. He lived and died in relative obscurity. Born in 1890, Uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, died sadly at the age of 47 in 1937, having published only a single book. And he had a wide circle of friends because he was a devoted correspondent. He probably wrote somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 letters in his lifetime, talked about everything in those. So he was an avid correspondent. He had a wide circle of friends. But sort of somewhere along the way, picked up a reputation as a bit of a recluse. Lovecraft wasn't a bestseller. His work appeared in pulp magazines alongside Conan the Barbarian and outlandish stories about rocket trips to the moon. He was published originally in Weird Tales magazine, a magazine that published stories like Lovecraft's, aimed at a very tiny niche audience. These were cheap magazines, that is to say cheaply printed On pulp paper, they cost typically 10 cents, 15 cents, 25 cents. They paid their writers very little, and they were specialized. One of the first great ones was Black Mask, which focused primarily on early detective fiction and suspense kind of related fiction. There were, you know, Western magazines. There were there were all these subgenres of magazines. There were dozens of different titles sold at the local newsstand, and they built up very significant but niche audiences. And one of them, one of the ones that was very successful and, and lasted for a long time, was the magazine called Weird Tales, which started out publishing just what it sounded like. Tales that were sort of science fictional They mostly involved uh, spacecraft or aliens or some sort of monsters. Uh, They tended to have a lot of voluptuous women on the covers. So these magazines generally, they paid the authors very, very little, but they paid them something. So for a lot of the authors who broke into these, it was their first commercial sales. Lovecraft was one of their highest paid, but high pay meant that he was making dirt as opposed to just crumbs. During his life, Lovecraft was the big star of Weird Tales, having written stories like The Call of Cthulhu, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and Herbert West, Reanimator. But despite his pulp success, he remained a niche author. And even though he was writing bizarre stories for Weird Tales magazine, he thought of himself as a strict rationalist. So Lovecraft, as a young man, was intensely interested in science. He uh, was an amateur astronomer. He wrote an astronomy column for the local newspaper. And he was interested in other sciences as well, physics in particular. He paid a lot of attention to the work going on by uh, Einstein and other scientists. And he was disturbed by the ideas of randomness and chaos underlying the universe It it wasn't until the 1930s that he finally became reconciled to Einstein's theories and understood that they were, in fact, scientific. Lovecraft had no interest in the supernatural or the mystical, 
magic, witches, all that mumbo jumbo, just it, it meant nothing to him. What fascinated him, though, was the discovery of the, the vastness of the universe. And he came to the personal view that humanity's role in that universe was insignificant, uh, a, a little sprinkling of dust among the stars. And so what his writing reflects is what has come to be known as cosmic horror, the understanding of that insignificance, the confrontation of humans by the indifference of the universe, uh, that there were probably beings far superior to us um, in, in age and in knowledge. This is some, of, some of this has gotten translated as elder gods, uh, that there may well have been civilizations long before ours that have now vanished from the earth, that there may have been aliens traveling to this earth thousands, tens of thousands of years before now. And that that was pretty terrifying to understand that relative insignificance. Now, there's a pretty clear connection, in my mind anyway, between that philosophical thinking, that sort of rationalization of the role of humanity in the universe, and Lovecraft's personal life. Uh, here's a man whose father died at the age of two from syphilis in an insane asylum and whose mother died when he was uh, 18 or 19 years old in the same asylum. And so he was, I think, deeply fearful that he too would go insane, that, that he had those genes, that he had the, that predisposition. And so that fear drives a good deal of his writing. In addition, when you add to that, his insularity, and his isolationism almost, this sense that anybody who wasn't like him, a white Anglo-Saxon, slightly genteel person from Providence, those were the aliens, all those other people. And there is a certain equation between them and those other forces, the elder gods, the monsters out there in the universe to whom we are insignificant. H.P. Lovecraft was a racist. In his letters and sometimes his poetry, he was explicitly white supremacist. And as Leslie mentioned, that racism shows up in his work, both up front, in the language he uses and the depictions of characters, but also thematically, the sense of some other dangerous species just waiting to invade the orderly white world and corrupt humanity. I have a friend, he would say like, yeah, when you're a black sci-fi writer, you have a lot of racist grandpas. P. Jelly Clark is a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. His new book is Ring Shout. Lovecraftian horror set in 1920s America. The Klan is on the rise, aided by wretched monsters called Ku Kluxes. Filmmaker D.W. Griffith, director of the film Birth of a Nation, is actually a sorcerer. And that racist silent film is actually a spell cast over the country, bringing forth the darkest thoughts and dreams of white America. Lovecraft probably would have hated it. Pigelli says it's a strange relationship. Lovecraft's personal racism oozes through his work, but that work is incredibly influential. Lovecraft's legacy, and I'm sure we'll talk about the complications of that legacy, loom large within 
much of what people call cosmic horror or supernatural tales or what have you, even if you were not directly influenced or you've not directly read Lovecraft, you've, you've probably read or watched others who have been influenced. Like I'll give an example. If you've watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? And their notions of evil and so forth, there, there's, there are so many Lovecraftian themes in there that are self-evident. This world is older than any of you know. For untold eons, demons walked the earth. And in time, they lost their purchase on this reality. All that remains of the old ones Certain magics, certain creatures. Oh, I, I need to sit down. I'm influenced in much those same ways. Those themes kind of seep into some of my writing. And in this case, definitely that was there. And of course, the chance to explore, however, the notion of racism and how that functions in a Lovecraftian sense was too tempting to resist. Pigelli says it's important to remember that while Lovecraft was a particularly extravagant racist, racism is part of the lineage of the genre. In some ways, it's complicated. And in other ways, as a marginalized person within speculative fiction, it's not too complicated. <laughs> because in some ways, uh, when you are just a marginalized person, you're often consuming since I was younger, whether it was through television, whether it was through literature, little slights and cuts <laughs> all the time, right? Whether it was J.R.R. Tolkien speaking of, you know, orcs that look like black men from Far Harad in his writings, whether it was watching a Tarzan film or something of the sort, there was always these issues of race. There was always these slights and these, these biases that were just always there. If Lovecraft does anything, I suppose he simply blares them. I was often much more interested in how other people interpreted Lovecraft than my interest in Lovecraft. Of course, it wasn't until much later I learned that Lovecraft was this hardcore white supremacist, which really made me sit back and think more about what his world was offering. While it's impossible to dismiss Lovecraft's racism, Pigelli is alluding to the way Lovecraft's fantasy worlds offer an uncomfortable resonance for people today. When the professor became convinced that the sculptor was indeed ignorant of any cult or system of cryptic lore, he besieged his visitor with demands for future reports of dreams. Back to the Call of Cthulhu, with the narrator going through his dead uncle's papers and things. His uncle, a professor of linguistics, died with a box of press cuttings and a strange stone idol. A local artist had made it after a night of dreams and visions, first triggered by a rare New England earthquake. The artist was inspired to create the thing with its symbols and hieroglyphics and depiction of a horrible monster. The professor kept in contact with the artist, who was plagued by nightmares every night after. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview, the manuscript records daily calls of the young man during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal imagery whose burden was always some terrible vista of dark and dripping stone, with a subterranean voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts, uninscribable save as gibberish. The two sounds most frequently repeated are Cthulhu and Relay. 
The professor then writes to all his contacts looking for similar stories of strange dreams and visions. It was from the artists and poets that the pertinent answers came. These responses from Aesthetes told a disturbing tale. A large proportion of them had dreamed very bizarre things, the intensity of the dreams being immeasurably the stronger during the period of the sculptor's delirium. Some of the dreamers confessed acute fear of a gigantic, nameless thing. That's the typical way for a Lovecraft story to begin. A scientist or detective or journalist drawn into a hitherto unknown mystery. The Call of Cthulhu is perhaps Lovecraft's most famous story. But most people come across Lovecraft as a reference in some other work. Yes, so one of the first times I ever heard the name H.P. Lovecraft was when I was a teenager. Carl Cederholm is a professor and chair of the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters at Brigham Young University. He is the co-editor of the book The Age of Lovecraft. And I had purchased a copy of Iron Maiden's album Live After Death. I was looking at the album cover art and just so intrigued by all the little details on it. And on a headstone is a quotation that was attributed to H.P. Lovecraft. That is not dead which can eternal lie. Yet with strange eons, even death may die. And then in earnest, reading Lovecraft and just basically going bananas with him ever since. In the 1920s, Lovecraft was writing in the genre of weird fiction. But today, the genre is often just called Lovecraftian horror, or cosmic horror. A lot of what makes something Lovecraftian is this general sense of wrongness, that something is wrong. The world is no longer functioning the way that you presume. And slowly over the course of the story, and it's almost always a slow, slow burn, this growing sense that you are about to discover that everything that you've ever thought about the world, your most confident sense of how things work, is about to be completely undermined. In literature today, there's a weak form and a strong form of Lovecraftian cosmic horror. The weak form, lots of tentacles and mutants and gross creatures. The strong form, an unidentifiable sense of dread. I want to read a passage from Supernatural Horror in Literature, which is an essay or sometimes published as a book that he wrote where he tries to define some of these things. He gives this wonderful definition. The true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains a certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer, unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint expressed with a seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject of that most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature. There has to be an atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread. And it peels back the curtain and takes your your perspective up into the highest 
cosmic sense, this vast, you know, impossible sense of time and space and energy. And it tells you how small you are. Cosmic horror is a perspective on the human that reduces the human to the smallest possible thing where we tend to think that the human is at the center of everything, but cosmic horror says, no, not so. When you dig way beyond or search way beyond the human, you find that there are forces and powers and processes and things that are way, way, way beyond our ability to ever comprehend. From movies to books to television to music, What could explain Lovecraft's cultural high in 2021? Carl says Lovecraft's cosmic horror, that feeling of individual powerlessness in the face of unknowable and unstoppable forces, reflects the feelings of a lot of us as we look around at the state of the world today. Our world seems to be harder to understand. The way that you know, during this pandemic, for example, there's just this this sense of dread that hangs over us. You know, these questions, will this ever end? Will I be infected? Will my loved ones be infected? What will happen? What's interesting is that in March, when the pandemic first started to shut things down, there was also an earthquake here. And so we woke up one morning and our house was shaking. And And it led to even greater fear for us personally that, great, is the world just falling apart and and breaking at the seams? And there are upheavals in nature, there are upheavals socially, there are riots, there's violence. And there's just a sense that we are teetering on the brink of something, but we don't know what it is or what to call it. And to me, that's why Lovecraft resonates more and more with people, is because we recognize the nervousness that his narrators are describing because it feels like we're experiencing it and it's not necessarily going to be in the form of Cthulhu, but it is going to be in the form of these overwhelming things that are hard for us to process. You're listening to a documentary called The Rise of Lovecraft on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu, a man stumbles across a world-spanning conspiracy. The story's narrator, going through his dead uncle's papers, pieces together reports of ancient cults in every corner of the earth. 
cults in service of a sleeping god. They worshipped, so they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now, inside the earth and under the sea. But their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men, who formed a cult which had never died. It had always existed and always would exist, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world. Until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Relay under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. That story was published in 1926, and it didn't make much of a stir. But between then and now, H.P. Lovecraft's work has exploded in popularity. It has influenced TV shows like Stranger Things, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and Lovecraft Country. This documentary from Matthew Lazen Ryder explores why Lovecraft, ignored in his time, might resonate so well in the 21st century. I suspect that a lot of us who are in Generation X probably started paying attention to Lovecraft because Stephen King liked to just talk about Lovecraft. And so we wondered, well, if this is a person who influenced King and a lot of us grew up loving King's work, it would behoove us to go to the source. But you know, even King, I think King used a rather funny phrase to describe Lovecraft. He called him a galloping racist. Minister Faust is an Edmonton playwright, journalist, and writer of science fiction. He is not a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, yet sees why Lovecraft's themes may be virulent in the present. Cosmic horror, as a phrase, could mean many things, including a pervading sense of dread that incalculably powerful and evil forces just beyond the line of sight or just beyond our peripheral vision are amassing to subject us to endless terror, misery, punishment. But I believe that the times in which we live demonstrate that a lot of the people around us are much worse than we ever imagined. I don't think that Lovecraft necessarily was really concerned with actual scary space alien elder gods or whatever you want to call them, especially since we know it's been abundantly demonstrated that he was, he was a bigot. He hated Africans. Lovecraft was deeply racist in his personal letters and his work. His family cat was named a racist slur for African Americans, and he wrote a poem about how black people were the lowest in a supposed racial hierarchy. His 1925 story, The Horror at Red Hook, inspired by his time living in Brooklyn, is full of epithets and insults, and depicts other ethnicities as creeping, dangerous threats to society. To Minister Faust, who is Kenyan-Canadian, it would be dangerous to try and explain away Lovecraft's racism as a product of a racist time. It's absolutely necessary and valuable to point out these appalling aspects of, and they're not aspects, I mean, this is the pervasive character of Lovecraft, who, you know, whose name, by the way, becomes even more hilarious <laughs> once we recognize what he was shipping. But... You know, he's representative of an awful lot of people who didn't say what he said or didn't write it, but they did enact it through policies and education in housing and banking in military police deployment and, and in so much else. 
So, but I do also want to note that a lot of times people have started to use this phrase that you're judging people or condemning them using contemporary values when you should you should place them in their proper historical context and what they miss when they say for instance nobody in the 19th century knew that the enslavement of west and central africans in the united states was wrong it's like um actually all of the west and central africans knew it was wrong <laughs> so why why would you exclude us from the category of humans who had an opinion on this subject i mean it, it, it's obviously idiotic right so the reason i'm saying all this is that I don't want to overfocus on Lovecraft when he was representative of a lot of people whose contemporaries knew that their values were garbage. A lot of new work inspired by or adapted from Lovecraft doesn't shy away from his racism but directly confronts it, uses Lovecraft's themes to take on Lovecraft's white supremacy. What was that? It's a shaga. What? It's a monster from one of Lovecraft stories. Lovecraft Country, the best-selling book and now HBO show, imagines an African-American family that ends up in the middle of Lovecraft's haunted world. The Ballad of Black Tom by author Victor Laval is a retelling of the horror at Red Hook from the point of view of one of the black characters. And Ring Shout, the new book from Pigelli Clark, where the dark cosmic force is racism itself. When it comes to Lovecraft, you know, you consume it and you also know it comes with all of these poisonous elements. And I suppose one of the great things that I feel I can do as a writer, as a creator, is I can take the things I like and uh, not exactly, I don't want to say I, I, I get rid of the poison, but I sometimes critique the poison, right? I put it on, on trial and I think it's this sticking it to Lovecraft in a sense, right? Saying like, look, we took... The stuff that you created, and we know for some, we know in many cases you had, you didn't have our characters at heart. You didn't have people who looked like us at heart. You actually had us in very negative roles, but we're going to take it from you and we're going to flip it around. We're going to do what we want with it. And there's nothing you can do about it. My writing is not an ode to Lovecraft. It is more so a jab. So why do it at all? Why take the tropes of this genre, so heavily influenced by Lovecraft, to tell a story about something real, like racism? Pigelli says that fantasy is the perfect and in some sense oldest critic of reality. Pigelli's Ring Shout tells the story of a group of resistance fighters opposed to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in 1920s America. But the clan is aided by supernatural monsters, corrupted by their hatred. This notion, for instance, of the clan as monstrous, that actually comes from these narratives that were taken down from uh, ex-slaves in the 1930s. They were there when emancipation came. And one of the things I came across as I was reading those narratives was their discussion of that first Ku Klux Klan. And it was they who described that first Ku Klux Klan as monstrous, right? They pointed out that this first Klan uh, wouldn't wear like the type of dress that we think of the Klan. They sometimes would use pillowcases or sometimes they blackened their faces or sometimes they wore horns or pretended they had tails. And so you had these former slaves speaking of these Ku Kluxes as these as these monsters in a sense, and they would even give them these supernatural qualities or refer to them as haints, which is a, a Southern 
black dialectic word for 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 ghost or bad spirits and there was a, there was something in there when i was reading that that made me think about how people living through that terror people living through that type of racial fear and terror utilized the supernatural to speak about what they were going through right and that they rendered this into stories these were the stories they chose to tell these interviewers who came to interview them about their life during that time and i suppose it speaks to this notion that all storytellers and maybe human storytellers have done this for a long time we like to use ideas of folklore ideas of mythology and so forth to speak about uh the real world sometimes the more horrific the real world is the more we look to fantasy storytelling Lovecraft's racism often seems to go hand in hand with his rationalism, his focus on science and genetics. Hello, I'm Alison Sperling. I am a PhD of literature and cultural theory, uh, and I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Technische Universität Berlin and an affiliate research fellow at the ICI Institute for Cultural Inquiry Berlin. Alison is particularly interested in the way Lovecraft depicts bodily weirdness human beings corrupted or transformed into something alien. And creepily, he always tries to weave it into a somewhat scientific perspective. I think that's it's a crucial point for a lot of the narrators who are also very much rationalists, right? They're all men trained in letters, trained in the sciences. And I think this is like what becomes, in fact, most horrific and is perhaps what was most horrific to Lovecraft himself is it is this exact rationalism that is the thing that is being refused in the end that becomes a kind of actual moment the crux of the horror there's lots of weird bodies in lovecraft no doubt about it and you know there's the tentacular cthulhu there's the large winged elder things of at the mountains of madness the frogfish of shadow over innsmouth so there's no lack of weird bodies in the stories but i think you know these obviously weird and horrific forms often relate in really interesting ways to the ways the human characters in the stories perceive themselves and their own bodies. And in Lovecraft, this is, of course, tied up with fears of miscegenation and obsessions with upholding whiteness and Europeanness. So we can think about, for instance, in Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, which is quite a unique example of Lovecraft's work and the only actually novella he'll see published before he dies in 1937. The Shadow Over Innsmouth is about a man who goes to an old seaside town looking for information about his family history. Long story short, he discovers that in years past, the patron of the town, a man named Obed Marsh, made an arrangement with sea-dwelling fish mutants that the townsfolk would mate with the creatures in exchange for gold. You know, the most horrific thing for the narrator to uncover, right, what he uncovers in the end while he's researching his family tree and genealogy is that he too is a descendant of Obed Marsh, right? He too is part of an alien lineage. And, you know, impossibly, suddenly, um, he can see it in his own reflection in the mirror, just like a day or two later, right? As if his image suddenly has taken on the qualities of ancestors he's only just discovered were his. So, you know, and part of the reason I say it's a unique story is because although the story contains many examples of racist and xenophobic attitudes, like really ugly ones, at the end, there's this weird welcoming of this shifting into a new shape. So he devolves into a frogfish and is planning to descend back into the depths of the sea. And it's a unique example. 
where it's unclear whether he's kind of backtracking a bit on, on some of his previous positions or perhaps revealing some ways in which the fears of contamination by other racial groups that is so present in his work and letters is also maybe tied up with a form of desire or at least curiosity for the very thing that he fears. Allison has a few ideas on why Lovecraft and his readers may have been so interested in the strangeness of the human body. People are seeing the body in completely new ways in the first half of the 20th century. One could point to so many different spheres um, and developments. You know, the birth of nuclear and quantum physics, the discovery of radiation, the invention of technologies like the X-ray, for instance, which are making the body visible and knowable in intensely new ways. We can think about military technologies, you know, from the First World War, which maimed bodies in significant new ways and at a mass scale, right? Millions and millions of soldiers coming home with a wide range of disabilities, popular biological determinism of the eugenics movement, um, which was so popular at the time, um, shockingly meant to kind of improve the gene pool of the country. And this is, of course, born from and, and breeds a fear of otherness, especially imagines whiteness as the kind of emblem of purity and holiness and peak of civilization. You know, I would just add that you know, when I was first encountering literary criticism and scholarship of Lovecraft, I think that scholars too quickly kind of compartmentalized his racism, right? Said, okay, he he had this view, but we can take this other view, right? He had this, he had these racist attitudes and we can condemn the racist attitudes, but we can import instead, you know, this kind of cosmic pessimism and, and, and we can just take this part. When I think that this kind of cosmic pessimism is tied up with fear and hatred and disgust of otherness. And so we have to think about them together, right? They're inseparable. I suppose that only a single mountaintop, the hideous monolith-crowned citadel, where great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. Going back to The Call of Cthulhu, the narrator learns of a world-spanning cult which worships a sleeping god named Cthulhu, who waits beneath the sea to one day rise and terrorize humanity. After searching the globe, the narrator at last finds a first-hand account of this sleeping god a ship's log from a Norwegian captain whose yacht had stumbled across the ancient sunken city of Relay, home of dread Cthulhu. Johansson and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping Babylon of elder demons and must have guessed that it was nothing of this or of any sane planet. Instead of describing any definite structure or building, he dwells only on broad impressions of vast angles and stone surfaces, surfaces too great to belong to anything right or proper for this earth and impious with horrible images and hieroglyphs. It was Rodriguez the Portuguese who climbed up the foot of the monolith and shouted of what he had found. The rest followed him and looked curiously at this immense carved door. 
The acre great panel began to give inward at the top. The aperture was black with a darkness almost material. The odor arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still. When it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poisoned city of madness. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy. Such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. The stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vigintillions of years, Great Cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy. Carl Cederholm at Brigham Young University says the horror of Call of Cthulhu doesn't come from the size of the creature or its claws or tentacles or wings, but the conflict in the mind between what's rational and what's real. Cthulhu represents all that is impossible, but... The creature is also standing there looming over you. And so it is possible. And so the contradiction between the impossible and the possible now stares you in the face and you have to reconcile that. And that's what drives people to madness because how do you do it? Someone filled with kind of this enlightenment rationalism you know, confident in their ability to discover the laws of nature or the universe or of gravity and these different kinds of things, they're going to see the unknown as a puzzle that they can solve. But if you come to believe that the world is something that you cannot know or cannot understand, that that it's wrong to think that you can you know, uncover the, the, the ruling laws of nature, then you're starting to let the world become frightening in this unknowable, you know, Lovecraftian sense that we, we flee from that larger cosmic understanding of things because the implications are so terrifying. And that's part of the key of that larger cosmic horror idea is that ultimately cosmic horror is the horror that we are nothing. Part of the story of Call of Cthulhu is that only certain people could hear the cryptic messages from the sleeping god. Only artists or scientists or philosophers, seekers of truth, and that's how Lovecraft viewed his own writing as well. In Supernatural Horror and Literature, Lovecraft says, the appeal of the spectrally macabre is generally narrow because it demands from the reader a certain degree of imagination and a capacity for detachment from everyday life, 
relatively few are free enough from the spell of the daily routine to respond to wrappings from outside, and tales of ordinary feelings and events will always take first place in the taste of the majority. And he goes on to say that, you know, it's okay. We're all kind of interested in the ordinary to some extent. But it's almost as like he's suggesting that not everybody can hear these, the call of the cosmic, or not everybody can be affected by the call of the cosmic, which is a very odd thing. Like, can I be so saturated by the trivia of the day that I miss this sense? I mean, is he almost kind of pressing us to say, there's more, there's more, there's more. But we don't want to experience the more necessarily that he's putting out in front of us because I don't really want to encounter a giant monster that's going to rip my mind apart. But in a way, he is kind of saying that humans are so caught up in the mundane and the trivial that they forget that there may be deeper existential questions that need answering, not just, you know, what time do you want to go get milk, but what time should we think about future. <laughs> Minister Faust, the author who admits he is no fan of Lovecraft, sees something else at work with the popularity of Lovecraftian cosmic horror, that it resonates today because it surrounds us today. The cults and conspiracies and ancient sinister beings of Lovecraft's world have been made real by the conspiracy theorists of the internet. We spoke the day after the riot and invasion of the U.S. Capitol building, part of a movement awash in conspiratorial thinking. And to Minister Faust, the connections couldn't be clearer. What we see now is that the kind of people who attempted this coup yesterday are motivated by these similar hates and this absurd set of fantasies about what they think is a threat that's all around them. So this type of idiotic, upside-down lunacy in which we are asked to believe the very opposite of what is abundantly right in front of us, uh, yeah, that that is a parallel for the kind of cosmic madness and horror, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the upside down in Stranger Things or just any of these stories uh, tell us that there are grand illusions at work. You know, we live at a time when QAnon has become a, a household word because of the number of people who either truly believe that the world is not what they say it is, or they view it as a convenient way to manipulate others into eventually exterminating their neighbors. The appeal of the idea that you have cracked the code and that you know more than the rest of those fools, the sheeple, you, you're better and smarter and, you know, if there is to be salvation, it will only be because of, of the people who see through the lies and, you know, rather than being the people who are actually promoting these lies. And Minister Faust argues that maybe in the year 2021, we don't need to surround ourselves with stories of a horrible reality that the powers that be are keeping from us. And maybe we don't need to indulge in the nihilistic idea that humans are just tiny, powerless specks of dust in an uncaring universe. I am more than willing to accept the fact that in the grand scheme of human evolution, of life on our planet, the size of our solar system, our galaxy, our local group, and our universe, that we are tiny. But that's irrelevant. Because our own lives in our own experience, this is the biggest it gets. So, yeah, you and I, we're not immortals. So what? 
while we are here right now, this is as real as it gets. So what if we're dust? We still love, we still dream, we still create, we still have the capacity to inflict cruelty or to act out of compassion. If this is what it is to be dust, then to be dust is glorious. H.P. Lovecraft died in Providence, Rhode Island in 1937 from intestinal cancer. His obituary in the local paper states that he kept a regular journal of his decline in an effort to aid science. The obituary concludes, his clinical notes ended when he could no longer hold a pencil. But Lovecraft has risen again. His work now lurks behind much of the fantasy and horror in books and movies and television, while a new generation of writers wrenches it away from the genre's racist past. And for many, his main idea may ring more true than ever. That humanity's place on this earth is precarious, that the universe doesn't really care if we live or die, and try as we might to distract ourselves, something awful is just out there, waiting to be reborn. Cthulhu still lives in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. You are listening to Ideas and to a documentary called The Rise of Lovecraft by contributing producer Matthew Lazen Ryder at CBC Vancouver. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on Facebook or Twitter or on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. Thank you to Lisa Christensen for her reading of The Call of Cthulhu. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.